from 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor and this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you the Remedies Pool C winners are revealed, Goldman Sachs dips into subprime lending with the Apple Card and NatWest trials voice banking with Google Home. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 349 of Fintech Insider. Uh, today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Sarah Kachansky. How's it going, Sarah? It's good. It's good apart from the weather, which is possibly the most British thing I could ever have said. Yes. But honestly, this week it has been so windy and so wet and I just can't believe it's August. You have just like hit 11 when it comes to Britishness, haven't you? You've gone yeah. peak British. The first thing I've said is, how are you? I'm great, but I'm whinging about the weather. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we do have some other folks who may, may or may not whinge about the weather. Um, we're not alone. We're joined by some incredible guests. Um, making the new show debut is uh, Stephen Lemon, who's co-founder and VP at Currency Cloud. Stephen, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. I'm also annoyed about the weather. But oh, okay. well, thank you. It's thank disgusting. You. It's August. Thank you for your support. Uh, we're all joined by uh, Carl Hazelley. Have I said your name right? Close enough, Hazelley. Ah, uh, uh, damn it. Uh, VP at Finimize. How are you doing, Carl? I'm good. I quite like the weather being terrible because it reminds me that some things are still normal when everything else in the world is kind of crazy. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good point. It's a good point. And of course, making a welcome return is the one and only Caroline Plum, CEO of Fluidly. How are you doing, Caroline? I'm good, thank you. Very good. Thank you so much for being back. Um, welcome to the show. Let's get started. Um, first story, the big news this week is probably the Remedies Paul C winners being announced. Um, so this is four... £10 million grants are awarded to the following organisations, uh, Atom Bank PLC, uh, iWalker Limited, Modular Finance Limited, and the Currency Cloud Group Limited. May have heard of those. Um, so, Stephen, as one of the winners, would you tell us a little bit about this and, and uh, what does it mean for your business? And also, maybe it's worth a little recap of, of, of what the process looked like from your perspective. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're we're delighted. It's hugely exciting for us, um, and uh, it means that we can widen the access of affordable foreign exchange and international payments to to more UK SMEs, um, enabling our customers and their customers, uh, which is what it's all about. Um, the process was onerous, to say the least, but luckily we have a, a secret weapon in Alex, who's a, an ex-McKinsey consultant, so he ran the process for us. And he Secret weapons called Alex, eh? We've got one of them, he's an audio producer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, uh, Alex, Alex did well. I mean, it was a team effort, but Alex, Alex he, he nailed the process. It wasn't too onerous, but... Um, yeah. Ask Alex so, so, yeah. <laughs> How does Alex feel about that situation? He, he, he looks exhausted, bless him. He's got a week off now. Yeah. So, so we have our, another um, previous winner of one of the BCR funding rounds in the room with as well, Caroline. So um, Banking Competition Remedies Fund, uh, how's that process been going? You're a little further into it. What are your reflections on it a uh, few weeks uh, since the win? Yeah, no, we, we have the £5 million in the bank now, which is very exciting. The well, day so they that pay on arrived. time. They do pay on time. Uh, and so it's brilliant. Um, I mean, I think our, our process was pretty... I think we did about 400 hours in the last week. It was a lot of work, but um, we're now in the process of just deploying that money. And I think it is, you know, we're doing a lot of recruiting. We're starting to um, do the cash flow management, forecasting insights that we were said we were going to do in our delivery. Um, and it's been really, really good, actually. It's been, it's been quite a lot of reporting after. And of course, it's public money. So you've got to be really mindful about how you get that reporting right. And rightly, they're very careful about it. But um, yeah, it's been good. Good stuff. So is it worth a recap of, yeah, just what the sure. BCR fund is for those who aren't familiar? 
Um, yeah, we're actually recording a podcast like this coming up soon, but I can do a recap for, for listeners on Monday. Um, yeah, so basically it was um, what David, our CEO, likes to call a cruel and unusual punishment. Mm. But basically um, RBS didn't do what they said they were going to do. Um, and the punishment for that was having to set aside a large chunk of money that was handed out to their competitors and would-be competitors um, to improve the business banking market or business finance market for small to medium-sized enterprises. Um, there were four pools, each of which had different... Um, targets or different, um, sorry, uh, goals or aims, I suppose. Um, so pool A was was the big one, if you like. That was the, the largest pool. Um, Metro Bank won 120 million, Starling won 100 million, Clear Bank won 60 million. Um, and the aim of that was that they had to produce entirely new business bank offerings. Um, pool B, um, that was 50 million to Nationwide, 15 million to Investec, and another 15 million to the Co-op Bank. And that was to enhance existing SME offerings. Um, and then pool D, which I'm, I'm sure Caroline could tell us about, but that was um, commercial commercialization of fintech so that was very specifically um, I suppose ancillary services maybe how you could describe it rather I think than bank accounts per se yeah I think it was particularly about innovative technology and how you like you know bring that to the market um, so, so it's interesting it's, it's all done now we've, we've got all the money out the one thing I've never quite understood is why pool D was announced before pool C but I'm sure somebody can explain that um, interesting to me I, I like the idea of it um, but we didn't see there's some names missing I think when we saw the winners so we saw Starling in there and we saw you know uh, Clearbank alongside Tide but we didn't see Monzo um, which is an interesting omission from my perspective I don't know if anybody else has thoughts on that I mean, I think what's been interesting about the whole piece is, well, a few things, actually. Firstly, what happens when you tip 1.5 billion of money into um, the UK SME market? And yep. obviously, it's 775 million. But what's interesting is everybody has offered to match that commitment. So yes. there's everybody, huge, now? everybody oh. done at least a one times match. Some people have done a two times or three times match. Three times. Yeah. So it's a huge amount of money kind of just tipping into the market. And Which, I think people did bid for it, like Revolut, Monzo, others. I'm sure maybe they weren't successful. Yeah, but you, you have to imagine that Mon- uh, Revolut put in a fairly strong bid, don't you? But, um, there are some names missing, clearly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the, the other, from, the, from the, the big bank side, there was kind of an expectation, I think, or, or well, not an expectation, but there was a, a rumour that Clydesdale and Yorkshire Bank were going to do quite well out of this as well. And then they didn't do as well. No, they were a Paul A bidder, right? Yes, they were. Yeah, pool A bidder. Um, so, and I, I think I think Monzo was a pool. Uh, no, Monzo was a pool A because they didn't pool. have a business account live yet. No, they were B as well. Were they B as well? Okay. Um, but yeah, I think I think there's some names missing. Um, I want to see what happens, especially with those very large chunks of money. So it's interesting that the, the largest chunks have gone to almost the largest banks. I think given it's a really strange sort of cruel and unusual punishment because I think it's actually going to be a really good thing because. If you think about Amazon, to mention the name everyone always does, they're quite kind of secretly a massive player in the SME world through Absolutely. the merchants on their, on their platform. And incumbents from retail to media to whatever else have all failed to compete with Amazon in any sensible way. So by forcing RBS to effectively pay a bunch of startups and challengers to you know, to, to compete with Amazon effectively and perhaps partner with those banks down the line and get a piece of that pie, it's a different way to come at this competition. Otherwise, Amazon will probably swallow the whole SME market given enough time. Carl, that's a really interesting point that I hadn't considered because I, I was coming at it more from the, the SME market in the UK had been historically quite fixed. It was it was where banks made their net interest margin, right? If you compare that uh, that sort of market to the, the retail market, which had quote-unquote free banking, in the in the SME banking, there was you know, people were holding a lot of deposits and effectively you had something where uh, there were a lot more fees 
fees involved. It was a lot more profitable. But the SME experience just, just wasn't great and the problems weren't being solved. I think what's really interesting as well that they've gone for things, both both providers that are, you know, providers, service providers, people that are actually you know, delivering to the market. But for me, I think what's interesting is they've also gone for people that are delivering kind of the fabric of the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the currency clouds, the modulars, the um, code out in pool D, you know, you've got people that are delivering things that hopefully will take friction out of the market overall by improving data transfer or payments transfer. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite an interesting approach. Hopefully it will actually be something that kind of multiplies it's, it's infrastructure, isn't it, as yes. well? So you're not just doing that front end. You're not just giving, you know, banks, and you know, a million pounds to do it to a fancy new end and build their own functionality yeah. and features, which may, which may or may not work, given that they're relying on the older systems. If we update the systems as well at the same time, then, then hopefully it has a, a double impact. Yeah, they've gone for a kind of multiplier effect on mm. the money, but also in the, in the marketplace generally, as well as competition. I think it's, it seems like a good mix. So where do we think this is going to leave us in three, five years' time? Do we think SMEs, Carl, coming back to your point, is it going to be um, mostly uh, Amazon still doing the lending and now they've got a lot of new suppliers? Or, or actually are we going to see a material more competition here? I think competition's ultimately got to be a good thing at this relatively early stage if you compare it to you know, other industries. But at the same time, you know, with, with as much love and respect to the people in the room here, I wouldn't bet against Amazon having a massive chunk of all parts of the SME market. I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I, I think I, I can see a scenario where Amazon are quite quite dominant in the online marketplace participants, so e-sellers. But are they going to participate? Are they going to win market share with other unrelated SMEs, so like so, UK what, manufacturing companies or engineering? I, so I don't see it. I'll, I'll give you an example of why in three, three years, maybe not, but in five, maybe. In the US, probably, I think in July, maybe, they announced that they're working with Realogy, Right, they're a real estate platform. Um, you can once you basically find a house, um, you can go through uh, Amazon to furnish it to get a bunch of stuff, and there's a, some sort of discount or partnership mm. tie up there. I can't remember all the details, but all of a sudden, Amazon's now attached to a bunch of you know home improvement vendors, like you know, small businesses that you know, maybe maybe even your plumber or whatever else. And so, all it takes is one or two partnerships, and then they're in an industry that you never thought they'd be in. It's an interesting concept, Carl. I mean, Stephen, I wonder if, if, if the point was more, uh, is it sort of a, a bit more of a patchwork of suppliers and, and a bit more competitive than you might see where with, a, with an Ant Financial, where their marketplace has been there, they're more dominant. The market is quite different in, in the West, but possibly. I mean, it's, it, that's what makes it intriguing, if nothing else. I think you're seeing two main trends. One is the kind of verticalization of fintech. So, you know, down by sectors, whether that is in real estate or in Amazon or retail, where payments and credit are going into the, essentially into the workflow. But I think, and that will have a big effect on lending. But I think the other piece is um, generally, particularly SME, it's been a market where decisioning on finance in particular hasn't been very data driven. It's been very manually underwritten. Yes. And so the challenge is at the moment is like, can you get the data flows into the, for the credit decisioning? Um, and to make that a more seamless, more frictionless process. And until that happens, you're not going to have the kind of proliferation of lenders that drives competition. Uh, I think that's the challenge. Verticalisation and uh, and data, the two key trends. I think so. I agree. Uh, uh, The specialisation in in, in verticals, I absolutely agree, which is why I think Amazon have got a good chance Mm -hmm. to be dominant with uh, providing banking services to their marketplace customers. But... Businesses outside of that environment, the just high street high street stores or, or industrial estate stores, 
I can't see it. I, I, I don't. I don't think they. I don't think their message resonates with them. Stephen, should we? Uh, should we take a bet to not bet against Amazon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't bet against them. <laughs> uh, thanks very much. All right. So next story um, comes from CNBC, and this is about Goldman Sachs and uh, apparently dipping into towards subprime, quote unquote, which links to Caroline's uh, previous point about data. Um, it's casting a wide net for its customers of a new credit card with Apple. Um, Apple wanted its bank partner to create a technology platform to approve as many of its 100 million plus iPhone users in the US as possible within the bounds of regulations and responsible lending. And Goldman began to make the card available to some Apple customers this week. And I think there was an example where they were giving uh, sort of cards to people with a FICO score of 590 and mm. subprime is anything below 660. But I think to Caroline's point, is, is being subprime the same now if we're looking at data a different way? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things here. One is, um, you know, uh, what does subprime mean? And at the end of the day, FICO is one company that gives you one score based on X number of criteria. And and is that FICO score, you know, is that what we should really be looking at to define subprime? You, you have the same thing in the UK, but it's slightly more confusing because you could have an Experian and Equifax and... Core um, credit. Uh, well, no, no, and, and a... And a um, you know, a clear score score, and they're all marked out of different things. So yeah. 660 doesn't mean anything because one might be out of 600 and one might be out of 800. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting to me is, again, define subprime, but Goldman Sachs, which is the partner on this, they're the actual bank, moved back into um, c- consumer or retail banking very, very successfully a few years ago with its Marcus platform, which does um, savings accounts with high deposits and lending. And about 13% of the personal loans at the bank's Marcus's business are to subprime FICO borrowers. So my two points are, one, I'm not really sure I believe in FICO scores anyway, and credit scoring, we can definitely have a conversation about that. The second is that it's not that unexpected from Goldman. And the question is, and I don't know whether they have or not, whether they've used some of the data they've gathered from those loan borrowers and applied that to credit borrowers. I don't know. Let's hear from our uh, America's MD, Sam Moll, to get us some US-specific insight on this one. Unless you've been living under a rock, you're well aware of the new Apple Card that has been launched in partnership with Goldman Sachs and MasterCard. Basically, Apple is managing the user experience, which makes sense as the Apple Card is only available to iPhone users. Duh. And by the way, the user experience is pretty damn good, as you would expect. The titanium card that I'm sure Johnny Ive has blown up on his home office wall is pretty damn cool, to be honest. And the application onboarding experience has received rave reviews so far from what I've seen on Twitter and the web. Goldman Sachs is the issuing bank, and so it's responsible for all the under-the-glass bank stuff, you know, the boring stuff, credit checks, risk, disputes, transaction data, statements, etc. What surprised a couple folks, though, since the rollout is that users with subprime credit scores have been approved on some occasions for the Apple Card. As a quick review, FICO scores range in the U.S. from 300 to 850. Typically, a score north of 700 is considered good, while scores around 670 and below are considered subprime, in other words. They're, they're riskier credit loans. So obviously, Goldman has taken advantage of the risk engine they created for their lending platform, Marcus. And they've been given a directive by Apple to approve as many of their 100 million U.S. iPhone users as possible to ensure the Apple Card becomes front of wallet. And neither Goldman or Apple is foolish as the interest rate for these subprime applicants can top out around 24%. And it's going to be fun to watch and see how this plays out and if Goldman continues to approve subprime applicants going forward if the Apple card is successful in the U.S. market. 
Colt, do you have thoughts on this one? Sarah, I think I agree with you. I think in the first instance, FICO score, no FICO score. It's not a sub- subprime loan on a credit card because whoever's making the loan or making, you know, taking the loan out has an iPhone. So <laughs> those things aren't cheap. You're a certain, you've already got a certain amount of money in the bank if you're buying an iPhone. So you're safe from that regard. I also think, you know, subprime, not no subprime, that's how you run a credit card business. If you only lend to prime, air quotes, customers, they clear their balances every month, the interest that you're charging never actually gets paid. And unless you're Amex and you're charging, you know, $150 a year for the card itself, you don't actually make any money running that card from your consumers. You're making the interchange. You do, but from the consumers, I guess. Yeah, if you look at the interchange revenue, it has been falling historically. I think the US market is is different. Carolyn, you make a good point. Yeah. Uh, in Europe, you wouldn't make a lot out of interchange because the interchange is capped. But if you look at the revenue sources for a, for a card issuing business, it, in the US, it would still interchange would still be 30, 30 40 percent, yeah. something like that. Um, and then I think the interest is another 30, 40 percent. And then they have fees kind of making up the rest of it. Yeah, just one other thing I was going to say was back to the data point as well. Um, so the, one of the, the guy who, uh, the guy, there was a TechCrunch article and there was a gentleman quoted in there who had got one of these cards um, approved successfully. His FICO score was 620. So that, that's that's considered low by the traditional standards. Um, but his limit was only $750 and the interest rate he's being charged is 24%. Now, 24% may seem high compared to, I don't know, an overdraft or something, but that's actually a very low interest rate, particularly in the States. And only $750. Again, you could get into a lot of trouble with $750, but I don't know. I would really like to see what other bands we've got in there because to me that suggests they might be doing some very clever... credit stepping you know so you may have a subprime FICO score but maybe Apple and Goldman Sachs between them understand a FICO score is not necessarily a relevant measure so they're going to start small and we'll do what all credit card companies do which is, which is build you up to a higher limit but I, mean, I wonder if it's something sorry, sorry Caroline, Caroline. Okay. oh no I was saying, is this a story really about Goldman Sachs going to subprime lending or is this more about the democratization of a service uh, some of which includes subprime, but is also including, you know, prime and premium. You know, I think it's actually just a, about one card offer for everybody in a sort of one UX, one consumer experience. Yeah. They probably think, have priced differently. But. I think that's an interesting point. And I think this, this kind of resonates with all the tensions in this deal that I see. And that is, I can't help but think that there are unusual bedfellows. Goldman Sachs and and Apple. And I find it strange that we've spent the majority of this conversation talking about subprime in the context of Apple. Mm. As Carl said, an iPhone costs Mm -hmm. £1,000. A new one does, but presumably they're rolling it out. But but Apple is a premium premium brand, never mind product. Mm. But Goldman is trying very hard not to be. Goldman is trying very hard to be the bank of the, the people these days. The, the bank for the ultra-high net worth and... No, well, no, no, it's, no, it's not. It's, I, it's retail bank is very much not that. That's why they're lending it's to... Accessible, it's accessible, but aspirational. Yeah it's, yeah, it's aspirational, but it is... Which it's, arguably it's the same brand positioning as Apple. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, have a, I have a Marcus bank account, for yeah. instance. Don't get me started on Marcus. There's a podcast <laughs> called My that's Love a, Affair that's with Marcus. That's a whole Marcus. other conversation. <laughs> so I think there's, there's an interesting tension, though, to, to Caroline's earlier point about data and pockets of risk. I always um, think that Oak North Superpower had mm-hmm. been identifying interesting pockets of risk that the market wasn't addressing. And FICO scores were creating sort of this line in the sand. Below this number, there are no pockets of risk worth taking. But it's entirely possible to be somebody with a high income and a bad FICO score. Goal. 
that might be an iPhone owner, that might not be an iPhone owner. So the ability, but then the flip side of that is we've seen people lend into quote unquote subprime before and it go wrong. We've had a financial crisis. We've had things go wrong in that space. So are we convinced that data alone is the answer here? But I think the whole point of all these change, you know, innovations in the credit scoring model, whether that is the Amazon lending piece or whether that is, you know, iWaka or eBay or, you know, I'm sure these scores as well. It's about how can you get different risk splitters? How can you get behavioral data, augmented data, new sources of data that nobody else has? And are they fundamentally making a difference to your risk model? And therefore, you think you've got a pricing advantage somehow. FICO is very crude. They've got to be a bit better than that, I can surely. see how Apple really likes the idea of a one-size-fits-all product. <laughs> it, it's, it's one card, it's beautiful, it's got Johnny Ice fingerprints all over it. They are the ball, aren't they? Probably quite literally. Um, <laughs> but but one-size-fits-all just doesn't work in banking. But isn't it one-size-fits-all in terms of the UX, in terms of the experience, in terms mm. of the look and feel? But I bet it's not one-size-fits-all in terms of the credit limit, the pricing, the I, I bet the there are people rates. out there who've got like $10,000 limits. Yeah. And, you know. Here's a question. When it comes to, to the UK, who's who's going to get one? Anyone here? I don't own an iPhone. Don't own an iPhone. Don't We're all on Android users. Ooh, okay. But it, I know if David's listening right now, he's screaming and jumping <laughs> up and down. I bet David's going to get one. David oh, yeah. will be, yeah, he's like, when can I have one and can I have the metal version? And I, <laughs> I bet it's a very clever segmentation running off the back. Absolutely. I think yeah. two other things just to think about in terms of the risk. I think one is very few banks came out of the massive global financial crisis well. Um, not necessarily covered in glory, but financially well. Mm. Goldman was one of them. Yeah. And um, just for disclosure, having spent most of my career to date at Goldman. Oh, how could you do that oh, now? Oh, 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 I wanted to see what you'd say first. Oh, me. <laughs> like one thing you can say about everyone there is they're phenomenal risk managers. And so having run Marcus for a while and tested the market, they know what they're doing. And their data are obsessed at Goldman as well yes. in a way that I think a lot of other banks talk a good game of being but aren't really. Um, and I think that's something really powerful. Listen, I've got to move us to the next story. We, I'm sure we could go on about pockets of risk forever and risk management because we're nerds like that. Uh, but the next story is about Robinhood gaining their authorization to open in the UK. So commission-free stock trading at Robinhood has been given the green light by the FCA uh, to open for business as a broker in the UK. The approval comes just a week after Revolut uh, announced plans to launch its own commission-free stock trading service across Europe, starting with gradual rollout to a select number of its metal card users, which we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to. We spoke to the newly appointed UKMD, Wanda Rutgers, to tell us more. Last week, the FCA authorized Robinhood International to operate as a broker in the UK. This will enable us to bring our investing platform to customers here, and it's a critical step to achieve our mission of democratizing finance for all. We're determined to make investing accessible to more people around the world. We're proud to choose the UK as our new international market and as the home of our new office. In the coming months, we'll be focused on building out our London team and preparing for our launch. This is the beginning of a new chapter for Robinhood, and I'm thrilled to be a part of that journey. Yeah, I will. So I have been quite vocal about how interested I am in whether these Free, and I'm saying that in inverted commons, uh, stock trading platforms are a good idea. Mm. And whether the idea of democratizing stock trading is in fact a thing we want. Um, j- just because there's a, there's a number of reasons, and I'm very happy to like have a, you know, to, I'm not, not going to stand on my soapbox <laughs> about this. But one is that um, 
I, I think as much as these platforms put educational material out there and as much as they say that they're trying to help and educate customers, there is still a perception, and particularly if you look at the demographics who they are targeting, that this is like maybe a get-rich-quick, not being, that's a very crude way of putting it, but a quick way to make money and not really understanding the principles of investing. First of all, you know, you might lose everything you put in. And second of all, it really should be a long-term, a long game. Um, the second thing is about this idea of free and I just, as somebody who doesn't really fully understand the mechanisms of the, the, the stock market and the broken market, I don't think anybody does, to be honest with you, um, the, the idea of free, I think, is questionable. So Revolut, you can only get it if you pay £13 a month for their premium offering, so that's not really free. Um, free trade, it is free, but you only you, it's only free if you agree to have your trade placed at the end of the day. Now, that isn't necessarily the best time at which to place your trade. Otherwise, it's £1 per trade. It's quite a bit to unpack with that statement, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And as I said, I, I'm not fully au fait with this, but to me, I'm like, uh, yeah, that's probably not how this should work. Um, now, Robin Hood, as far as I understand it in the US, is completely free and uh, and the trade is made at the point at which you make the purchase. Um, their business model in the States is uh, to make interest on, on money in customers' accounts that's not, that's not being used. Um, they have premium accounts again, but you know, premium accounts are obviously what they say they are. You get extra things with them. Um, and, and then they have margin lend, uh, margin trading. Um, so my, my, my two points are, one, do we really... What do we think about this as a democratisation? Is this a good idea? And second of all, what about these business models? And, and are they, linking back to the first point, actually good for consumers? Or is it actually, would it be better to use some of the older models? Carl's going to jump in can and I, correct can me. I, can, I make, can I just make Stephen a quick statement? First. Can I just make a quick statement before the ex-head of equities trading at Goldman? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Nothing quite so grand. I, I, I'm not sure that I want a free, in inverted commas, stock trading product. I'd, 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 I'd like the reassurance that it's expensive for a reason. And, uh, there's a different and, question. And, and, and there's somebody on the other end of the service to talk to. Okay. Can I ask I a different question, Stephen? Do you want a slick, low-friction, mobile-only stock trading experience? I'm sure there will be people that, that would. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take Stephen's point and then yours. So <laughs> it's really interesting that you say that. So many moons ago, I spent a lot of time working um, on trying to understand Ocado. And the reason that they charge delivery fees, unless you have that pass, is because they said if they offered free delivery, customers turn their nose up at it saying, no, something's wrong. It's not meant to be this cheap. I want to pay yeah. for something. And there's a weird psych- oh, psychological wow. and, and thing. That's exactly the point. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's a weird if, thing if, where if, if it's if, free, if it's too good to be it true. Away, then surely there's no value to it. That's exactly the perception. So I understand where you're coming from, but let me pick up the let me pick up the business model thing first, and then we'll talk about the other stuff. So yes, they're free in that they don't charge you anything for making the trade in most circumstances. But what they do is bulk up orders, or even if they don't bulk up orders, they they will trade at a price that isn't necessarily the best market price available. So I was right about that? Yes. Oh, goodness. Okay. And doing so allows them to make a little bit of money. And so let's say a stock costs 100 They might say, you've had to pay 102 for this. They might have got it for 101 And so they make a dollar in the middle. So that's, that's, you're sort of right about the free aspect of it. But even if you're paying seven ninety five a trade or whatever it is, you still have that. You're still paying a lot more depending on the ticket price of the stock, right? So I think it's one of those things of like, who's the person buying the stock and how big is their trade? Because paying the flat fees is probably more expensive for you or me buying two or three shares of the latest IPO. But for somebody buying 300, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 shares or something. And even that doesn't guarantee you get the best possible price. But uh, I think if you take a step back from the market 
overall, though, what are Robinhood and Revolut, you know, what are they all trying to do? Build a bank, right? Mm-hmm. And they're essentially using a hook to acquire customers and then trying to, you know, sell more products through that once they've got an acquisition hook. Well, so it's, the question it's the is loss it, leader, isn't it? Like it the is, current yeah. account used to be. So the question is, is, is the loss leader... Well, that's how Revolut started the, with yeah, FX and payments. Just. Revolut did FX and, you know, um, Robinhood have done commission-free broking. But the question is, in the UK market, is commission-free broking going to be a good hook when you've got the already working hook of free FX? I think you it will. That Monzo, Revolut are kind of... I think it will, and I'll tell you why. Because they appeal to, for better or worse, the immediacy and the sort of I-want-it-now nature of um, of millennials who are desperately trying to figure out a way to make their money outlast, outlast their lives sort of thing and don't really know what to do. And so they make it seem seamless, easy. It's simple to access financial markets where there were walls up to the sky. Uh, Carl, I like that point. It, there's a, an accessibility that I think is really important, regardless of perceived value. The permission I have, oh, I can do this, that confidence thing is really powerful. So I've got to move us to the next story because we we're, we're enjoying these far too much. <laughs> um, the next story is about the uh, Central Bank of Ireland to skip the deadline for strong customer authentication rules. So, I'm not uh, going to enjoy this story. Yeah. <laughs> The Central Bank across the industry. The Central Bank of Ireland has followed the lead of the Bank of England, announced a delay to the rollout of strong customer authentication. National regulators have been given uh, additional leeway by the European Banking Authority to extend the September deadline, and the new rules demand a two-step verification process for all online purchases over thirty euros. Thought. I mean, I'm not going to go into this in too much detail because I did host a podcast on this, which you can go back and find. It's episode 314. Um, Basically, great concept, drive a load of innovation. Like Monzo has some fantastic ways of verifying you are who you say you are making payments. Yeah, they're all on there. Um, but uh, of course there was going to be a delay uh, the FCA has announced now that they were they've t- there were two recommendations made by the Bank of England one was we should have a delay of 18 months the other was they should be even longer if you're in a particularly unprepared industry whatever that means e.g. travel the FCA has said travel can sort itself out everybody else has to um, but we will give you an 18 month extension it was expected sort of makes sense um, they've probably done some sort of cost benefit analysis of allowing chargebacks on unauthorised high value transactions versus not allowing those transactions in the first place and mm-hmm. um, with like the UK economy sort of well shrinking last quarter and teetering on the brink of well, and yield yield curves are just flip flopping exactly. all over the place you don't, you, don't, you don't really want to be the one you don't want someone to point at you and say well you caused a recession because you stopped all these people making money well and I think uh, the like uh, conversion at checkout and for e-commerce is such a critical point for yeah. e-commerce. Like, there's so much cart abandonment anyway, and if you add any friction into that process, which you know we've seen uh, as the banks have done open banking after a year and a half, two years, it's getting almost usable from a lot of the major banks now. It's starting to reach that point. But would their instant SMS when you're going to buy something mean that I feel more secure online and I have less fraud, or I still have a, a roughly the same amount of fraud and way less transactions going through exactly. because of the economy and that's I think the worry here any other thoughts Stephen Caroline no I don't think there's going to be too many organisations upset at having an extension <laughs> on the deadline but um... I was going to say can I give you one brilliant anecdote about one of the big banks preparedness for this which actually came out of the Daily Mail's This Is Money yeah. apparently Santander were like we've got this sorted we've got this solved um, here are our two you know options both require you to have a mobile phone so if you do not have a mobile phone 
Santander customers cannot make online purchases. Oh, and, and can we take a moment for the amount of solutions that are SMS-based? And of course, oh, SMS is yeah. not secure. Um, just, it's, just, it's, it's also not instant either. Yeah, let's just take a moment for the fact that SMS is not the answer here, people. Can we just get that out into the industry? All right. Might drive uh, people back into physical shops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is the campaign for the high show. <laughs> yeah. In a really weird way. In yeah. a really weird way. All right, we'll be back very shortly. Let's take a quick break while you hear from our sponsors. This deal sets apart. That this economy okay, is... We need to get down to business. Yeah. We need to get down to business. Yeah. 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 The pressure yeah. is beginning. Business in Brexit. 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 For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Cybos, the world's premier financial services event, is landing in London's XL on the 23rd to the 26th of September. More than 8,000 decision makers and experts from across the globe will gather to shape the future of finance, and the opportunities for fintechs will be bigger than ever. Specially priced fintech tickets are available. Don't miss out. Book today at cybos.com. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. If you love the show, don't forget to pass this podcast along. Tell a friend, spread the fintech love. If you're a regular listener, please, please, please leave us a review. It only takes a minute and it really helps other people find us. Uh, All right, let's get on with the show. The next story is about Venmo launching instant transfers to bank accounts. Story comes from TechCrunch. And this is a feature which is an optional alternative to Venmo's standard bank transfer service, which typically takes one to three business days to process the transactions. With instant transfer, funds from your Venmo account can hit your bank account within minutes. And as of January 2018, Venmo offered instant transfers to eligible Visa and MasterCard debit cards for a small fee. Uh, Transfers to debit cards are useful for gaining quick access to cash stored in Venmo. Not everyone carries a debit card, nor do they always want their funds to go on that card. Of course, uh, users can still choose the standard transfer option if they don't want to pay for the convenience of those instant payments. Uh, We spoke to our America's MD, Sam Moll, to get some U.S. insight on this one. The P2P market is a big deal in the U.S., and this space is becoming more and more crowded. PayPal's Venmo found a sweet spot as an industry leader in P2P, but lately competition continues to ramp up with products like Zelle and SquareCash. For example, the Zelle banking network posted a $44 billion in transfer volumes from 171 million transactions over three months in Q2 2019. And close to 500 financial institutions use Zelle as their P2P product. And to give you some perspective, Venmo's payment volume in Q2 was $24 billion compared to that $44 billion I just noted. To address this gap, 
Venmo has to do a couple of things. And this past week, they announced support for instant transfers to U.S. bank accounts. This is an optional alternative to Venmo's standard bank transfer service, which typically takes one to three business days like everybody else. With this new instant transfer, however, funds from your Venmo account can hit the bank account almost instantly and within a couple minutes. It looks like Venmo may be targeting gig workers and small businesses with this feature. Instant bank transfers can help this target audience by moving their Venmo cash to the main account for like paying bills, rent, and other bill paid debited transactions. Personally, I'd continue to watch the growth of Square Cash App. Now, Square recently, in an earnings announcement, noted their cash app generated $135 million in net revenue in the second quarter of 2019, with a run rate of $540 million. Venmo's run rate? Same period, $300 million. And Square Cash App now accounts for more than half of Square's subscription and services net revenue. The P2P war is on, folks. This will be fun to watch. All right, what do we think about that in the room? Any thoughts on instant transfers coming to the US? Last week, the news broke that they're going to have them as a network by 2024. Um, Venmo seems popular. Venmo is hugely popular. Um, not as popular as Zelle, which is the one that's sort of built and run by the banks. Um, so Zelle, there's some numbers that were in that TechCrunch article, but Zelle reported $44 billion sent on 171 million transactions in Q2 this year, um, whereas Venmo had a $24 billion um, sent. So, so Zelle has, has the bigger volume in terms of amount sent. Um, the advantage of Zelle, of course, is that it is free because you're doing account to account between network banks. You're not paying any fees on it. Um, this advantage of Zelle is that it does, well, there's two disadvantages and, and one could be linked to the other. It does require you to have a bank account, um, whereas Venmo doesn't necessarily require you to have a bank account. And two, if for some reason you wanted your transactions to remain anonymous, and I can't think why you might want to do that, but if, say, you did, um, Zelle would obviously be able to track them because it's from your account to somebody else's account, whereas with Venmo, it's from a Venmo to a Venmo, and um, I won't go into that too deeply, but you can definitely Google what's happening there. Mm. Is that worth paying 1% for, though? Well, see, this doing. is the point, Stephen, about the fees element. That depends on what you're doing. Yeah, well, <laughs> I guess. But this is okay, it's a ten dollar. But just, I, I, I guess we're very fortunate in the UK. We've got faster payments. It's free. This is not solving a problem for me. But I, obviously, America has faster payments and real time payments. Is it's been a long time coming. I, I do want to have a moan on behalf of Americans, though. Maybe we're spoilt here, and maybe I'm woefully misunderstanding how Venmo works, but it shouldn't cost money to move your money from one place to another. Absolutely. I think that's the point you sound, of you sound, like a, you sound like an advocate for transferwise, or... I mean, no, no. I, I have no, like, no horse in this race, but... Jeez. Account to account, fine, but even to send money well, to Well, I would PayPal, imagine they're paying some fees underneath it because I'm wondering how they're doing this, and my guess is they're using a service from either Visa or MasterCard and they're doing it card to card rather than account to account, mm. and they're adjusting your um, your auth balance on the cards, which with Visa and MasterCard, I think, I think, and I'm speculating and I need to go away and do the research, but I think there is a way to do that, but there are fees involved. So that hence they're passing that fee onto the uh, customer. It'd be interesting to see how this... This unfolds going forward with um, the announcement from the Fed about the real-time tra- well, real-time, exactly, yeah. real-time domestic transfer. It's one of those weird sort of things when you're sitting in the you know outside of the US market. You're kind of thinking, what is? Why do you need this? We sort of, I think we've got so used to having these sort of instant transfers, faster payment. You know, in the UK market, we don't appreciate that actually many markets are still you know running on check. And so this is a huge innovation. And suddenly, you know, don't you definitely get me, pay don't get me started don't on the American banking system <laughs> checks. But, it, but it also, in my mind as well which kind of agrees with all these points, um, is that it actually, un- the whole system unfairly penalises people who need access to their money faster, who typically are people who have less money, yeah. so then they're having to pay a higher fee to get access to their own money because they need their money because they have less money. 
And in my mind, I'm like, you're sorry, what? <laughs> Hashtag capitalism. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, but there is now a lot of competition in this Ex space. Goldman Sachs. <laughs> Ty- typ- typ- <laughs> typical US, though, of course. That it's not just Venmo. You've got Square's Cash App as well, and many others sort of popping up into that space. So there's a recognition that there's a problem here that needs to be solved for people. We're also seeing uh, that, uh, for instance, in the freelancer and in the gig economy, uh, I think it's uh, Green Dot have partnered with Uber to do the Uber debit card, and they're starting to to trial that at the moment to give people instant access to their cash. Uh, and with that, they're sort of uh, waiving the fees and covering the fees. They did that a while ago, didn't they? They, they, they have, and I think it was a trial as of October of last year, but it's it's starting to, to roll out across the nation now. Uh, but then somebody like an Uber ends up covering that fee to keep their drivers loyal, that fee is still in the system because the cost is still in the system. But a bit like we were just talking about the Irish Central Bank delaying strong customer authentication, the bank lobby in the US is is a lot more sophisticated and a lot more capable in terms of its system. But there's so many more of them. It's a less concentrated banking market and across more states with more regulators. So it is incredibly hard to get this done. So at least there are entrepreneurs out there trying to find interesting business models to to make the the right answer happen for consumers. Uh, there's still so much innovation in payments right? and you're still seeing all these kind of closed loop systems and you know um, whether that's Uber whether that's Benmo whether that's in healthcare payments or whatever it might be they're sort of Facebook just like, did Libra right yeah, it, like, it, it might not be the right answer it may be really esoteric but the problem they're trying to solve is legitimate yeah, and, and what I was going to say was that you see an awful lot of innovation, or, or I see a lot of innovation coming out of, of places like Asia where you're going actually from cash to, to new solutions. And, and I think that, you know, Facebook Libra is, 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 you know, one element to this, you know, some other stuff that's happening, particularly if you look at what's happening in Indonesia with the way that they're trying to make turn cash into digital money using mobile phones without the idea of a check or a clearing system. Um, there's got to be some meeting of minds there at some point when we get kind of the perfect system will never exist. But I'd, I'd like to see more of that merging of, of, of the two the two innovation cultures. Well, and also if consumer payments is a mess, look at B2B. Oh, that's so... Uh... <laughs> Shall we not? <laughs> but speaking of... About it. Speaking of payments, in a very different market, we've got uh, WeChat Pay and Alipay's partner QF Pay, um, because everybody's called Pay, uh, raising $20 million to help develop new digital payment solutions. QF Pay are the largest global payments partner of WeChat and Alipay, enabling them to process payments to merchants around the world. Uh, they raised the $20 million in new funding led by returning investors, including Sequoia Capital China and Matrix Partners, uh, bringing their total to $36 million. And the funding will be used to develop new digital payment products and roll them across Asia. Um, interesting that this is part of like the expansion outside of China into the rest of Asia. We've seen this macro trend for a little while, but it seems to be continuing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, I, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't know much about the payments infrastructure, so that, and then it seems like a payments processor to me on the back end there. Um, it's interesting to me that they're talking about developing new digital payment products. So I know that China is very QR code heavy. Mm-hmm. And it works very, very well for them for a number of reasons. Um, we talk many, we've talked many times in this podcast about how QR codes wouldn't necessarily work, say, in the, in, in the West or large parts of the West. Um, so I, I think it's, it's interesting, you know, no, nobody doubts that WeChat and Alipay want ways to achieve world domination. I don't think that's, that's in any question. Um, but it's interesting to me that their processor is looking for, like, maybe alternative ways of creating payments, which kind of goes back nicely to that last story about, you know, innovation in payment methods and mechanisms and, and actually at the root of it, maybe the infrastructure is, is the root of all of this. Well, there's, there's so little card acceptance and card infrastructure for the merchants and the costs are prohibitive of putting that infrastructure in some of these markets where QR codes are lower cost for the merchant 
to set up. Uh, they're lower cost because you can do them from phone to phone as well as uh, directly. And, and I guess this is about then everything that sits around that. So that if you look at what Square do, if you look at what uh, a lot of the merchant, the iZettles do, most of it's not just the payment acceptance. It's managing my stock and predicting revenue and dealing with what customer footfall am I going to have? All of those sorts of business problems. So QR, I wonder if this is heading in that direction. QR codes are a lot more prevalent throughout Asia, aren't they? Not, mm. not just for payments, but you walk into a restaurant in Shanghai and you, 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 you scan a QR code to get the menu downloaded on your but, phone. But it's got kind of ridiculous. Like in, I was in Singapore a couple of months ago and, and you walk to, uh, to a checkout and there are 15 to 30 different payment methods depending on the shop you walk into. And that's Every, just not a good experience. Yeah. <laughs> just, uh, and all offering different kinds of cashback for different sorts of things. It's, uh, it's a very different market. But um, QRFP is currently present in Cambodia, China, Hong Kong, Indonesia, Japan, Korea, Laos, Malaysia, Myanmar, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and the UAE, which caught my attention. Yeah, what's interesting to me is that, you know, we talk about Asia, um, but those are all very, very different markets yes. as well. There might be some overlap in some of them, you know, China and Hong Kong would have some overlap, um, Indonesia and Malaysia have some overlap, but then you look at Japan, the UAE and Singapore, and and they're, they're very, very different uh, operating systems, ways of people paying, you know, just generally money management systems. So they're obviously doing something right if they can operate in there is a There is there. a common... There is something in common that much of Southeast Asia has, though, and that's their obsession with smartphones. Mm-hmm. I, I, absolutely. And I think also the, the rapid growth in uh, kind of payments as a result of the low-cost infrastructure that came off the back of that uh, from, from being data-driven. It doesn't require the physical device connected to a card network that connects to uh, a till that can, is PCI DSS certified and etc. etc. This is much more low-tech, but around that then, they've almost skipped a couple of generations. And, and this story of kind of building the new payment solutions around, uh, around that for merchants in markets that are so different feels like this story is only just getting started like there's feels like there's a lot of growth ahead of this yeah i completely agree i think it's going to be really exciting to see effectively the answer to the question what if we rebuilt payments starting from scratch yeah. in asia because the starting point was completely different it was mobile and that's a lot of people's first experience of money and managing money and making payments mm-hmm. and if you look at history at least in the west if you go from you know, barter to cash to card the only thing that ever really changed anything was solving a consumer problem mm-hmm. as opposed to banks or telcos trying to get a bit more margin by offering an extra service. That never really worked. As they move out into these markets, there are a new breed of competitors. Though. Um, you've got the likes of Grab and Gojek and the super app space in Southeast Asia. But I think um, QF Pay works with those ah. because it's a payments processor. So they yeah. do some stuff with kind of like um, food ordering and uh, customer loyalty programs. So I think QF Pay, because it's the infrastructure, m- might well work. I don't know that, mm-hmm. but um, based on having a look at the products they offer, yeah. The fact that they work with both WeChat and Alipay suggests that. I, yeah, so I think they probably, I think they're, they're, they are a little bit like, we talked about Green Dot earlier or maybe Agent, you know, the, the stealth super fintech. Yeah, yeah. It, it's sort of um, selling shovels in the gold rush. Yeah, I, I think also if, if the discussion point is, you know, will this get adopted in the West? I think I think they've got to be clear what kind of problem they're solving, mm-hmm. um, because in, in the West we don't have a problem. You, you've got real time payments. You've got the ability to pay on your smartphone with with Apple Pay. Um, customer doesn't really care about how cool the product is. It, the customer cares about what they get out of it and, and, and 
what problem it solves. I completely agree. I think the issue with the QR code in the West where we already have the infrastructure around cards, and that's pretty simple, even if it's not super cool, is you show someone a QR code and then you need more infrastructure. It's like take your phone out, make sure you're, you've got a QR code reader and make sure you've got mobile payments set up. Now, if, for some people, that, for most people, that's probably okay. But if you don't have that, that's a lot more work and it's not a natural thing to do. For the UK and for the West, it's a behaviour change. But for uh, Asia, it's the, it's it's the standard behaviour. But, but I do wonder, because we have seen Alipay and WeChat Pay move into Europe and move into to Africa. And they've followed the tourists. And actually, if you there are certain parts of London that you go to and, and those payment acceptance would be everywhere. That QR code acceptance for those for those tourists would make a lot of sense. Can I, can I make my metal cards point? Because I've been really good and haven't mentioned it before. <laughs> Podcast. Um, to me, the current um, obsession with metal cards and people launching metal cards feels like a slide. To go back to your point, Carl, like if everybody's used to paying with their phone or their Apple Watch, why am I suddenly going to have to pull out my purse, dig out my card, and use that to pay? I know that's not what they're for. I, I have commented on this all over the media this week, so if you want to find more of my thoughts on it. But just that interesting idea of like changing payment behaviors because of what's in your hand. Um, it's. It, you know, I, I don't think metal cards are going to make us go go back to that that, that process. It is what the habit is. So I think the metal cards are. are but what about way. status? Well, there is status. <laughs> of course, there is status. Um, but as a payment mechanism to talk about the frictionless journey, then QR codes aren't very bling, are they? Uh, well, I suppose it depends. Maybe that's the problem. Yeah. Maybe they should be metal or QR codes. Oh wow! Well, can we get kind of engraved? QR in, code. Yeah, yeah engraved. Cool. Engraved QR codes with black diamond dust in the back. That's wow. David, are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> that, I'm sure David would buy that. Um, all right. Um, and Ed, our and, uh, next story this week is uh, Hey Google, lend me a tenner. <laughs> <laughs> you just screwed up so many people's yeah. living rooms. Sorry if you were listening in the uh, <laughs> at home at the weekend there. Uh, NatWest are trialing voice banking. The story comes from The Guardian. And they're beginning voice-only banking uh, that will give customers direct access to their accounts by talking to Google Home. The trial, the first by a UK high street bank, will let customers ask Google, what's my balance? Where's my, what's my latest transactions? What's my pending transactions? And uh, the home devices will answer verbally and also flash answers up on the customer's smartphone. Hmm. I mean, I, do not I, get me started. On yeah, that. Just, so there is so much to hate yeah, here. Just, yeah. Why? Why do I want my balance being cross, broadcast across the living room? Why do I want anyone that's in my living room to be able to instruct my bank so, to do something? So as, a, as a, a, a slight, and I'm mostly on board with this, but there is an accessibility point, and I think there is... Um, evidence that the that a lot of people are trying to use these devices as a way to make their services more accessible for customers who maybe struggle with 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 um have visual impairment or other disabilities but i'm going to back away now because that's if, the only thing i can say if natwest said that that'd be fine but i don't think they did and so it's just a gimmick isn't it it's a massive pr stunt surely and frankly natwest as a customer former about to be former customer. I mean, please, can you not spend your time sorting out the fundamentals of your current account, your business current account, your terrible software, and deal with that first before you build like the voice activated thing for consumers for your PR thing? It's, it's, it's like the builder that hasn't finished the job on your house but shows you the really pretty drawings their kid did. Yeah. It's like, that's a lovely drawing, but, but can you finish the house? Yeah. <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a bit like the point you made, Stephen, which is they're not really solving a problem because you've got to have a brand new pin code shout out two numbers from that pin code. 
that's already more inconvenient than taking my smartphone out, using my fingerprint or face to open it and go straight into my account and see everything I want to but see. Is, but is this just the remnants of something whereby the trial's quite interesting? I, I do think we've become quite cynical of the PR press releases because, like, granted, I see this press release and I think... I don't. I think this press release is a net negative for NatWest from a PR perspective versus some of the things they're actually doing, like Till, which I think is a really interesting merchant acceptance play, like Metal, like Bow, like all of those things that could actually impact customers in a positive way. I think this is just some sort of innovation team unit, surely, that's just yeah. kind of thought we've got to do build something. We've got a new CEO. Yeah. Like, let's build something cool. Mm. And you know, do you know who maybe this I'm is too a, cynical. Do you know who this is a win for though? Google. Because yeah, let's say this goes ahead and, you know, where Google Home goes, Alexa sure to follow. They're not, they're not going to listen to us, but think of the treasure trove of data. Even if they don't find out how much is in your account, the kinds of questions you ask tells them a lot about how you spend, how you behave, and boom, ads. Well, on that point, last month, it emerged point, that, last month it emerged that Google contractors are able to listen to recordings of what people say to the company's artificial intelligence system, Google Assistant. Uh, NatWest says Google would not store the customer's ultimate banking password, um, and the trial only covers devices. But that's not the same thing as not understanding what the Google device said or what the human exactly, said. If Google knows what's in my account, or Alexa eventually knows what's in my account. It, it's all over, isn't so, it? Well, but is it? So I mean, I'm just I'm thinking this through, and I'm thinking of the things you can do. So um, your your account balance basically. Actually, it doesn't really matter if anybody knows your account balances. Might be you might be have personal preferences for for not knowing that, and that's a question of privacy. But in terms of security, your actual account balance is probably not that important. But then, you, so I was like, okay, well, you know, whatever, maybe it's, it's important for advertising. Well, yeah, but but then you talk about well, yes, okay, so you've got a lot of money in your account, we'll sell you something, got it. But then it's all about instantly transferring money. And instantly I'm like, nope, nope, back away slowly. Like, but there are some, <laughs> I, I, I'm, and just, reading, America, I'm just reading the press release here. The technology can allow customers to multitask at home, maybe ironing, cooking or cleaning, whilst at the same time checking their accounts. <laughs> if, I was, if I was shopping online and I was like shopping on my phone and I was like, have I got enough money for this? Which is like, I was like, okay, hey, X, I'm not going to say it to annoy everybody else. What's my balance? Like, can I afford this? Sort of get that. Ironing? Does anybody else think about that? I don't Can you I just sort out the business actually. banking experience first, please? Yeah. <laughs> what did we say earlier? Could you just answer the phone? So, so the, there is this sentence as well, I think, to Caroline's point, that NatWest believes the technology could revolutionise banking in a way not seen since the start of mobile banking. <coughs> uh, or- <laughs> Which, which I think is, is a little ambitious. It's a hard no on that. Sure. Is, <laughs> is, is, but, but I think the broader point is, like, voice has been really hyped as being, you know, the thing that everybody would have in their house and it would become the conversational interfaces. And it's not really happening. I think everybody has one of these devices now, but how many people use them every day? They're just that thing in the office that annoys you. I've got, speaking of things that annoy you, so I, I had the conversation on this with my head of product this afternoon and um, he, he, I won't tell you his reaction, but he's got, two young boys and he hates Alexa because Alexa is constantly replaying the same Disney song Disney song what about over the and Harry over and over thing? again and he said I, I can't even with the two the password requirement the, the kids are just going to constantly be asking Alexa for daddy's bank balance or mm-hmm. daddy's transaction history or, or 
I, and I think there is something about that context of being in a room in a room conversation. Have we misunderstood conversational as a user experience? And is conversational possibly something different and accessibility something different? So accessibility is definitely one thing. And I can see these devices definitely having use of people who, who do have, um, you know, accessibility requirements. The other thing is that there's a gen- I don't have one because um, I live with somebody else who works in fintech and we are... F- far too cautious to have any kind of smart device in our home. Um, but the one use I have seen that's really useful is if your hands are, if you're up to your elbows in like a recipe and you need to know what comes next, is shouting out what's the next stage of the recipe. That is useful. Oh, and timing That's eggs. useful. And timing and the timer. Like, <laughs> yeah, the time, the time but when you've got eggs. your hands covered in flour, you're not just going to quickly do a bit of banking, are you? Yeah, no, banking, banking is like, yeah, okay. I, I do, I, so banking to your, and baking. I, I, I don't <laughs> think we've got conversational wrong. I just think we're really early. Mm. And what, what I mean by that is there was this huge wave of VC investment around investing in companies that do things the way that people already like to do things. So like messaging. Mm-hmm. So you had like robo um, like customer service apps and so on. And then people were like, well, people like to talk. So let's do that. But the way that we've gotten used to using technology isn't by speaking to it. Yeah. But kids, to yeah. your point, like, kids love it. And so in 20 years' time, when those kids are adults, they're going to be talking to all their machines, yeah. and it's going to work seamlessly. I, I think that's, that's, that's a really good change. point. And, and if you look at um, VR in 1993 and then, like, yeah. 2023, they're, they're completely different exactly. things. So, yeah, it's the time horizon thing, I think, is an interesting yeah. point. You know, you know how people whinge that um, kids don't, you know, what a book is? know what a book is anymore because they just use an iPad and they don't have to write anymore because they just type. Do you think that like in 20 years time people will be like kids don't know how to interact with anything that involves their hands because they just talk to everything? Mm-hmm. Do you think that'll be the next like wind it's, it's like, you, you don't know how to swipe anymore. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> when I were a lad I used to swipe. <laughs> I, remember, I remember JP Rangaswani uh, a couple of years ago he gave a speech and um, it would flown in from San Francisco, I think it was at the time. He's obviously a very impressive man to, to listen to talk. And he was talking about, you know, when I grew up, when I was a kid, I used to get told off for putting grubby fingerprints all over the TV. <laughs> but my, my children now engage with the TV by... Do they, do you, are your kids the sort of kids that will touch something and if it doesn't react to a touch screen, look confused? Are they that? Oh, how, how uh, that was they... my, my, my child's five weeks old, so... What I want to know is, if screens and touch go away, how will we confuse cats? Just <laughs> <laughs> um, as a, actually a genuine point on accessibility... Touch screens are very, very hard to use if you only have one eye mm-hmm. because your depth perception is completely off. So I know this is a bizarre fact about me that you can bring up at a pub quiz at a later date. It doesn't, doesn't look like you've got a glass eye. I don't, but I live with somebody who does and I have two very good friends who only have one eye, vision out of one eye for whatever reason. And touch screens are incredibly difficult, particularly if you're talking about um, trying to buy a ticket you know, a ticket machine at a train station or use like a, a touchscreen only uh, cash point. So touchscreen is not the, uh, if you're talking about accessibility, that there is a, a gap there. It's, it's. But accessibility aside, yes. for the avoidance of doubt, throwing that West in the bin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but accessibility is literally, literally the last thing they said in the press release. Oh, they so, didn't mention it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the takeaway I mean, they were here... throwing everything in. They put ironing in the press release. Yeah. I mean, like, you know. I, I, I think the takeaway here is please stop doing press releases that is innovation theatre and focus on customer problem. I think that's a, it's a very fair request. And, and actually, to, to be fair, there are a lot of organisations, NatWest included, that are trying to do the actual innovation and this stuff steals the headlines from that. Yeah. It's fair. Alrighty. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's show. Uh, thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out more about you, Caroline? Uh, I'm on Twitter at cplum, P-L-U-M-B, or at fluidly. Fantastic. And Carl? I'm the Carl on socials and finamize.com or our iPhone app for more. The Carl. 
the car. I was going to say, that is amazing. How did you get that handle? I was, I was an early adopter to everything. <laughs> well played, sir. Uh, just well played. Uh, Stephen? I'm old school. I'm on LinkedIn and email, steve at currentscloud.com. Well, that'll work. Um, and Sarah? I'm on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky, and if you do want to hear me speaking slightly more eloquently about metal cards, um, I'm out there with a lot of articles at the moment mm, on the subject. Check you out. So many articles. You've got articles for days. Uh, if you want to talk to me not about metal cards, but anything else, um, then I'm available uh, at SYTaylor on Twitter, or you can email me directly, simon at 11fs.com. What did you think of today's stories, listeners? Let us know on Twitter, at Fintech Insiders on Twitter, uh, or email podcasts at 11fs.com. And of course, we have Instagram, YouTube, and Periscope for more content. And I recommend you check us out on YouTube and Periscope. There's a lot of stuff coming out there where we've done deep dives with product folks from uh, Starling, with uh, all kinds of interesting folks. And uh, I think David Breer was in San Francisco this week meeting some really interesting people. Uh, So check that out. Thank you for listening, and goodbye for now.